How is the Belt and Road Initiative different? Because they also do infrastructure development for loans. How is that different from IMF, World Bank, or other private enterprises which do financial development loans? Bell and Road offers an alternative to the World Bank in particular. Still, the problem with the IMF is that, just really briefly, a lot of countries in the global south, they have deficits with the rest of the world. They have what are known as current account deficits, which means they import more than they export. And it's largely because they're reliant on importing oil, gas, sometimes food, uh, also machine parts, capital goods, things they need to develop their own industries. So because they are often very heavily reliant on imports, and because Western powers and the IMF and World Bank constantly tell them that they should base their economy on exports and import all those products, so it's part of the cycle that is repeated, what that means is that they frequently have crises where they simply don't have enough foreign exchange, US dollars usually, in order to pay for all of those imports. So they deal with a crisis like we saw in Sri Lanka where your currency depreciates and there's hyperinflation and there's a shortage of goods. And then the IMF comes and they say, we'll give you a few billion dollars of US dollars to have foreign exchange to stabilize your currency and stabilize the economy. And in return, you have to impose all of these neoliberal policies and you have to sell off your state institutions to Western corporations. It's a very complicated issue. And thus far, there is not really an alternative to the IMF. But the BRICS has tried to develop a new alternative. It's still in the very early stages, and a lot of countries are hoping that in the future, the BRICS could offer more opportunities. Now, there is an alternative to is absolutely the World Bank. And China has very much stepped up, and we've seen a massive growth in high-quality infrastructure projects across the global south. And the World Bank was supposed to provide funding for that, but it actually ended up not doing so, whereas the Bell and Road is actually, you know, and as we say, putting its money where its mouth is and building roads and hospitals and ports and very significant infrastructure that these countries need in order to develop economically. Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. My name is Jason. Today with us, we have a very special guest, Ben Norton, who is a giant in the analysis of geopolitics. Ben Norton is a journalist and editor of geopoliticaleconomy.com. Geopolitical Economy Report has 125,000 subscribers on YouTube, and Ben himself has 260,000 plus followers on Twitter, uh, specializing in Eurasia, Latin America, the US, and the global economy. That's pretty much everything, you know, the global <laughs> Economy. Ben Norton is a household name in geopolitical analysis. His journalistic work has been published in dozens of media outlets, including BBC, Sky News, Al Jazeera, Democracy Now!, RT, CGTN, Press TV, Hispan TV, and various TV channels in Mexico, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Ecuador, and Bolivia. Sorry if I butchered any of those uh, names. Uh, welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you. That was a much too generous introduction, but I'm, it's a pleasure being here. It's pretty accurate, I think. <laughs> so we like to be personable and human on this show. We're trying to build bridges. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Why did you get into this? Well, 
I think like a lot of people of my generation, people in their 30s, we grew up, one, in a moment of financial crisis. I remember very well the 2008 financial crash. I remember the Occupy Wall Street movement I was involved. And I mean, we're of a generation that I think in many ways has a lot of similarities with the generation of people who grew up in the Great Depression in the 1930s, where people told us that basically there will no be there will not be any good jobs and even if there are good jobs you're going to be trapped in student debt of course I'm from the United States I I have lived many years in Latin America but I grew up in the United States and it was very clear for a lot of people that that the system is completely unjust the system benefits a small handful of wealthy elites the US government bailed out all of the big banks the federal reserve has spent well until recently it spent 15 years printing money to to essentially pop uh, to inflate a massive bubble of asset price inflation that that made the rich even richer so the massive inequality and in the meantime we have growing rates of poverty not just in the US but around the world you have more and more inequality and at the same time you have the US constantly waging war i mean i also remember very vividly protests against the Iraq war, protests against the war in Afghanistan, also the war in Syria, the war in Libya, the war in Yemen. There are so many. So I don't know how people can be apolitical in these kinds of moments. And especially in the past few years, I think there are many reasons to be optimistic because there are so many profound changes happening in the world. So I, as a journalist, I'm dedicated to helping people to understand those profound changes because unfortunately, the Western media has shown again and again that it's extremely biased and it's not interested in informing people. Instead, it's interested in, in manipulating how they think in order to manufacture consent for those wars, for those kinds of government policies in the West. So it's safe to say you're very passionate about trying to create a more equitable global order. Absolutely. You know, I am too. And one of the things that I'm interested in is global development finance. And so I wanted to ask you, because I'm I'm really want to understand every aspect of IMF World Bank. What is going on? They've been at it for half a century plus. So could you tell us a little bit about Latin America, the IMF and World Bank? Are the projects, the IMF and World Bank, helping Latin America? Or what is the case? Well, the short answer is no. And the long answer is definitely not. I mean, uh, uh, we can move on to the next question. No, but in all seriousness, we have to understand, first of all, what are the IMF and the World Bank? These are organs that were born out of the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. And this is such a formative moment in world history, but it's not very well known. This is toward the end of World War II. It was clear that the Allied powers were going to win the war. And the United States essentially made a plan for imperial dominance of the world, recognizing that Europe was largely destroyed by World War II. Of course, there was no fighting on US soil. I mean, Hawaii, but the US was left basically without any damage to its significantly to its economy and infrastructure, whereas the UK was destroyed, France was destroyed, many other parts of Europe were destroyed. And the US took this as an opportunity to impose its hegemony, not only in Europe, but in the entire world. The US basically absorbed parts of the British Empire. And in order to maintain its economic hegemony, the, the US organized the Bretton Woods Conference. It was, it was in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in 1944. The Soviet Union did not participate. In fact, the Soviet Union referred to it as a group of representing Wall Street. 
which is accurate. It was representing Wall Street. And not only did this group establish the US dollar as the global reserve currency, which is still something we're living with today, but it also created the IMF and the World Bank. Mm -hmm. The World Bank was ostensibly created in order to provide financing for countries to engage in infrastructure projects and development, and especially for rebuilding after World War II. And the International Monetary Fund was created in order to deal with balance of payments issues. Mm -hmm. And at this moment, when, Bre when Bretton Woods happened, the U.S. had a massive surplus with the rest of the world. The U.S. was exporting and exporting. It was a ma major manufacturer. And some estimates show that it was over 40% of world GDP at the time. So the U.S. was you know, using this opportunity in, of reconstruction in, in Europe to get rich. And then that later changed, and the U.S. has for many decades had a net deficit with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. But we can talk about that later. But the point is that these institutions were created to benefit the U.S. And they, they still serve that role today. Now, what really changed is in the 1980s, the IMF and the World Bank began essentially trapping Global South countries in debt. And it's a long history to explain how that happened, but the point is that in the 1970s, you have a series of crises. The dollar is delinked from gold. You have crises of inflation. You also have the OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, has a boycott, uh, like a kind of protest, essentially, in response to the policies of Israel, which we can see today. I mean, as we're speaking this October, there's another horrific war breaking out with the Western powers fueling more instability and chaos. So in the 1970s, there was this OPEC oil lockout led to a massive increase in oil prices. And this led to country, many countries, especially that rely on importing oil, getting trapped in more debt. And then they ended up lending a lot, uh, borrowing a lot from commercial banks in the US. And what the point is that there was this debt crisis in the 70s. And the IMF and the World Bank stepped in, especially the IMF. And in order to bail out these countries that were trapped in debt, it required a series of political demands, mm -hmm. including that countries had to impose austerity. Mm -hmm. They had to cut social programs, mm -hmm. cut education, cut health care, privatize state assets, deregulate uh, industries liberalize all policies, including lifting all capital controls, removing any currency restrictions, allowing their currency to freely float. So in many cases, countries overnight, their people, their life savings were halved in value. So really since the 1980s, the IMF in particular, but also the World Bank have served as these instruments of basically keeping these countries in the global south trapped. And the argument they make is that, well, in order to pay off this debt, these countries have to implement austerity. They have to cut social spending. And the debt does decrease, but what's not mentioned is that it often causes recession in these countries. Their economies shrink. So while their overall debt is shrinking, mm -hmm. their debt as a percentage of GDP is increasing, which actually makes it more difficult over time to pay off their debt. So this is a debt trap. Mm -hmm. And this is why it's so funny when you know Western powers accuse China of supposed debt trap diplomacy. I mean, the IMF is the master of debt traps. That's why right now Sri Lanka is going through its 16th IMF bailout package. Mm -hmm. If it didn't work 15 times before, why do people think it's going to work the 16th time? But it's perpetuating this relationship that is very similar to the colonial relationship. Mm -hmm. When these countries were formerly colonies, they're technically now independent, 
But these institutions that, again, were created largely by the United States are used to maintain that kind of neo-colonial relationship. Wow. So that's a lot of Walter Rodney's kind of thinking as well. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Let's pivot to BRI a little bit. How is the Belt and Road Initiative different? Because they also do infrastructure development for loans. How is that different from IMF, World Bank, or other private enterprises which do financial development uh, loans? Belt and Road offers an alternative to the World Bank in particular. Still, the problem with the IMF is that, just really briefly, a lot of countries in the global south they have deficits with the rest of the world. They have what are known as current account deficits, which means they import more than they export. And it's largely because they're reliant on importing oil, gas, sometimes food, uh, also machine parts, capital goods, things they need to develop their own industries. So because they are often very heavily reliant on imports, and because Western powers and the IMF and the World Bank constantly tell them that they should base their economy on exports and import all those products. So it's part of the cycle that is repeated. What that means is that they frequently have crises where they simply don't have enough foreign exchange, US dollars usually, in order to pay for all of those imports. So they deal with a crisis like we saw in Sri Lanka where your currency depreciates and there's hyperinflation and there's a shortage of goods. And then the IMF comes and they say, we'll give you a few billion dollars of US dollars to have foreign exchange to stabilize your currency and stabilize the economy. And in return, you have to impose all of these neoliberal policies and you have to sell off your state institutions to Western corporations. Well, that's a it's a very complicated issue. And Thus far, there is not really an alternative to the IMF, but the BRICS has tried to develop a new alternative. It's still in the very early stages, and a lot of countries are hoping that in the future, the BRICS could offer more opportunities. Now, what is there is an alternative to is absolutely the World Bank. And China has, has very much stepped up, and we've seen a massive growth in high quality infrastructure projects across the global south. And the World Bank was supposed to provide funding for that, but it actually ended up not doing so. Whereas the Bell and Road is actually, you know, and as we say, putting its money where its mouth is and building roads and hospitals and ports and very significant infrastructure that these countries need in order to develop economically. And it's important for a variety of reasons. One, when China through bilateral loan programs or, for instance, through development banks like the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank and others, when China gives out these loans, it does so without the kind of political conditionalities that are required by the IMF and the World Bank, especially, you know, I mentioned again, austerity policies, what's known as structural adjustment, which is, it's, it's a euphemism for austerity, which again means cutting social spending and privatization and deregulation. So that's why, one, a lot of these Belt and Road projects are very, uh, for Global South countries, they're seen as very advantageous because, again, they don't have those conditionalities. Uh, but furthermore, another reason that it's very significant is if, you, if you're a poor country in the Global South and you do want to develop economically so you're not so heavily reliant on things like imports, you have to develop the infrastructure to do that, which means you need to have ports, you need to have roads, you need to have the infrastructure needed to develop your industry, to transport goods. And 
a lot of countries, you know, especially in impoverished areas like Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Latin America, they desperately need this infrastructure. So China is offering them, in, in many cases, very advantageous loans, concessional loans that are below market values. In, in, some, in some cases, in the case of Africa, for instance, China recently announced that it was completely forgiving uh, the the interest free loans that were owed by nearly two dozen African nations. So, I mean, these these the conditions of these loans are much more favorable often. And in fact, there was a recently a study done by Argentine scholars from a group called the Center for the Study of Geopolitics in Argentina, and they found that looking at Argentina's borrowing of all of the different options for borrowing the lowest interest rates by far were from Chinese banks. So that's why it's a no-brainer. But finally, I want to point out that another reason this is important is not only because it's more advantageous for the, the countries that are borrowing, but it's also, I think, important an important step by China because after the 2008 financial crisis, which was really a North Atlantic financial crisis, a Western financial crisis. In fact, the Chinese economy continued growing throughout this crisis. So it's often referred to as global, but it was mostly, it started largely in the US banking sector and spread to other economies that were very linked to the US, especially in Europe. And a lot of those economies have never really recovered. But the point is that since the 2008 crash, the People's Bank of China has made signs the central bank of china have made in, has made indications that it wants to move toward de-dollarization and the governor of the people's bank of china published a paper in 2009 saying that this is an example the crash is an example of why china should start and the global community should start considering diversifying their foreign exchange reserves so they're not so heavily reliant on the dollar and this was before the u.s central bank the federal reserve embarked upon this historic money printing printing trillions of dollars to to just basically bail out all the banks and to prop up the wealth and pump up this big bubble of wealth of the elites in, in the west so what we've seen really since then is a move gradually toward de-dollarization. And if you think about it, if you're a country like China and you're this massive exporter, China is now responsible for nearly one third of global manufacturing production. It produces everything. All parts of the global supply chain are located in China. So China has all this capability and it produces such a massive surplus. But the question is, how are you going to, to save that, that value produced? through that massive surplus. What is the form you're going to save that in? Well, a lot of countries simply, they buy US government debt, treasury securities. But what that does ironically is it actually helps fund US government operations because of the power of the US dollar, because of the Bretton Woods system and everything we've talked about. The dollar is seen as the most stable currency and US treasury securities are seen as the most stable investment. So for a long time, China was simply buying treasury securities. but as it has moved toward de-dollarization, China has said, well, what we can do instead of simply buying U.S. government debt is we can in invest that surplus in other productive ways. And one of those ways is investing in infrastructure production, because instead of just holding on to a bunch of U.S. Treasury bonds, which, I mean, that's, it's, it's a store of value, but it doesn't contribute to anything productively. Instead, China has been lending that money and using that money to actually build infrastructure that helps people, 
helps them develop economically. And also in, in China's interest, it builds entire new networks of trade. So China is no longer so dependent on the US economy and the European economy. So it really is an example of win-win cooperation. And, and I think this is, you know, the, the Chinese diplomats talk about win-win cooperation a lot. And I think this is a concept I've seen countries in the global south have also adopted. It's a concept that I think everyone should support because diplomacy and, and trade and economic policy doesn't have to be the zero-sum game where one side wins and one side loses. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. In terms of BRICS, it's not just attempting to supplant the IMF. Also, there are a lot of new countries that have just joined and that are seeking to join BRICS in the future. Could you tell us a little bit about, because, I mean, I see a group of nations, a developing nations getting together and they're discussing, you know, uh, trade policies that are favorable and creating new policies that allow to facilitate trade between their nations and nations that are attached to their economies. But what is the purpose of BRICS? And also you mentioned supplanting or offering an alternative to the IMF. That's totally new to me. Could you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Well, it's still very much in the early stages. I mean, BRICS has has discussed this, creating an alternative to the IMF, but it still hasn't really materialized in concrete form yet, but there's been a lot of discussion of it. Now, what there is already an alternative to is the World Bank, and that is the New Development Bank, and that is expanding its operations. And the current president of the New Development Bank is Brazil's former president, Dilma Rousseff, of the Workers' Party, which is the left-wing party of Lula da Silva. And Brazil has actually really, I think, played an important role, one, in promoting South-South cooperation. This is something they're very uh, supportive of. They understand that the future, relies, the future lies in, in integrating the economies of Latin America together and also the economies of Latin America, Asia, and Africa together. So they're not so reliant and dependent on the Western powers in the global North, right? And Lula himself has repeatedly called for creating a new currency in Latin America to end dependence on the US dollar. And within BRICS, he wants to, he's proposed the idea of a settlement currency. So not, not like the Euro, not every member of BRICS will have the same currency. That would be very complicated and it actually would be a bad idea. But the idea is you have a unit of exchange that you can use for settlement of trade imbalances. And there are discussions going on right now within the BRICS for creating something like that. You literally mean a currency that you could not use inside a specific nation, international trade currency that's, has this ever been done before in history? Yes, in a different way. So uh, an interesting model is speaking of the IMF, the IMF recently created largely at China's initiative, China was pushing for this, the IMF created something called special drawing rights, SDRs. And what this is, is it's basically an international currency that you cannot use in your country. It's used to settle trade imbalances internationally. And the way its value is determined is using what they refer to as a basket of currencies, which means that it, it's it, there's a series of currencies included in the basket, like the dollar, the euro, and the Chinese yuan, also the Japanese yen. And what they do is they take each currency has a different share 
within it's weighted so it can change from month because, to month yeah because obviously you know currencies mo- almost all currencies in the world are freely floating or, to a degree so exchange rate between the yuan and the dollar will fluctuate slightly over time but when you have uh, something like this international unit of account this cur- currency settlement currency when it has its its values based on a mixture of different currencies so that maintains more price stability value or value stability and in the case of the SDRs they're pretty limited but we did see an example of this during the pandemic where a lot of global south countries with the support of china were calling for assistance so essentially at, with the leadership of china the IMF agreed to distribute SDRs to every country now the way they did it is they gave it to every country and a lot of rich countries don't need that and a lot of poor countries did need that but it's a step in that direction now i don't think in the future because of the reasons i mentioned the imf is still dominated by the us in fact there's only one country on earth i should have mentioned this earlier there's one country on earth that has veto power in both the imf and the world bank that's the united states because they maintain 15% shares of the value of those institutions. Yeah, I was reading about that as well. I actually wanted to talk a little bit more about de-dollarization as well within this context, because I've seen that some countries are already pushing for it. Uh, Saudi Arabia, India to some extent, Malaysia, uh, Russia for obvious reasons, China to some degree as well. Um, But if you read Western mainstream media, Wall Street Journal and such, they say it's impossible. So is there, the process of de-dollarization, whether it's SDRs or BRICS currency, or just diversifying the currency use in your international trade, is this taking place? And is it accelerating? Is it decelerating? Is it possible? It's absolutely possible, and it is happening already, and it is accelerating. Now, we should distinguish two different forms of de-dollarization. There is de-dollarization of international trade and cross-border payments, and de-dollarization of savings. Those are very different, right? So, de-dollarization of trade is much easier, and it's already happening very quickly. Brazil and China have signed agreements to do trade with each other within their with their local currencies, the Brazilian real and the Chinese yuan. We've seen that China has already been buying oil from the Persian Gulf region, from the UAE, for instance, using yuan. Of course, Russia has been selling its oil and gas in rubles and also accepting payment in other currencies like for instance the Indian rupee. So this is this is trade because the problem is a lot of so if you think about how international trade works you have country A country B let's say it's Indonesia and China. Until recently what a lot of countries did is the Indonesian importer that is buying Chinese phones will will invoice the the purchase in dollars and the same for the Chinese exporter of phones. And then the Chinese exporter of phones has a bank in China, and the Indonesian importer has a bank in Indonesia, and they exchange their currency through that bank, which often, then that transaction goes through a correspondent bank, as it's known, and usually it's a US bank, like JP Morgan, Bank of America, it's based in New York, right, on Wall Street. So that means that that's why the United States claims which is an absurd claim, that all of those transactions involving the dollars touch U.S. soil because they involve U.S. banks as intermediaries because they're in, these are transactions that are invoiced in dollars. So this also gives the U.S. the ability to impose sanctions and block banks from... So one, impose sanctions, which is a policy which 
should be illegal, but the U.S. claims it's legal because it touches U.S. soil, supposedly. So every transaction has to abide by U.S. laws, what the U.S. says. But then also, this gives the U.S. the ability to try to cut off those banks from the SWIFT interbank messaging system, which is used to communicate with the, with the correspondent bank. So basically, what's happening now is a lot of countries are saying, this is ridiculous. Why are we doing this? First of all, it is inefficient and slow. Second of all, the correspondent banks often charge a small fee. And third of all, every time we do this, when you exchange your currency in this way, you're helping strengthen the dollar. So what we should just do is cut out the middleman. And instead, Indonesia can pay in its local currency and China can pay in its local currency as well. And then you can, if you have trade imbalances, you can figure out ways to settle that. And central banks are working on this now. In fact, there's a new system that was created between China, Thailand, and the UAE that is called MBridge. And it's so and it's uses blockchain technology and it's a way for the central banks of these countries to to communicate with each other and to fa facilitate transactions by domestic firms in their local currencies and then the central banks can settle the the imbalances so the point is that that technology is already here it's being used it's being experimented with it's happening very quickly de-dollarizing de international trade is not that complicated now Sometimes the, what you're talking about is you'll see a lot of propaganda essentially in the Western media claiming that de-dollarization is impossible because de-dollarization of savings is more complicated. And briefly, what, what do I mean by that? Well, you're talking about treasuries. What, 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 yes, exactly. So countries that often that have a surplus that produce more than they export more than they import, they have they have the surplus and they have to save that value in some way, right? So I mentioned that for a long time, a lot of countries were simply just buying U.S. Treasury securities. And over time, you won't lose value because with there's slight interest on those Treasury securities, so you won't lose the value of that savings via inflation, right? But obviously, for the reasons we've been discussing, a U.S. Treasury security is not a stable, it's not a secure investment because one, the U.S. could simply steal it, which is exactly what the U.S. did to Russia. It's what the U.S. did to Venezuela, to Iran, to Afghanistan. The U.S. and also the EU seized, they froze, that is, they stole hundreds of billions of dollars in the foreign exchange reserves of, of Russia, of the Russian Central Bank. So that's Russian savings that they stole. And now they're going to use- and What, what was it? It was $9 billion in Afghanistan when they were pulling out. Yeah, exactly. Also, Iran, Venezuela, absolutely. And in the case of Afghanistan, this is causing a hyperinflation crisis because the Afghan central bank can't stabilize the currency. So anyway, the point is, when you have that savings, if you store it in US Treasury securities, the US has established a precedent now where they can just, if they don't like something that your government does, they can steal that from you. So that's not a secure saving. It used to be seen as the most secure investment, no longer. So now countries are thinking, what can we store that th our savings in? And gold is increasingly happening. Now, for, for all the, the gold bugs out there, that is, this, this does not in any way mean that countries are going to start backing their currency by gold like they did in, you know, with the gold standard. No, 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 no. But the point is that gold is a much, much more secure form of foreign exchange, well, reserves, not foreign exchange, but a form of reserves of your central bank because it's much more difficult to steal gold than it is to take the the treasury securities. But the point anyway, the point I'm getting at here is that countries are looking for alternatives to the dollar and the dollar is still the most commonly used currency in foreign exchange <laughs> reserves. But according to some economists, 
it has already dropped below 50%, which is massive. I thought it was 80. No, 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 no. Well, wow. even according to the even according to the IMF, the IMF wow. acknowledges that it's only 60, about 59%. Wow. So for people who don't understand what I'm saying here. So all of the central banks in the world have foreign exchange reserves, right? That's what you need to stabilize your currency. You can intervene in foreign exchange markets. It's basically your, your central bank savings. And as recently as 2000, according to IMF data, more than 70% of all of the foreign exchange reserves in the world were held in the form of dollars, usually treasury securities. Now, according to the IMF, that figure since 2000 decreased from 70% to, to 59% as of 2022. And that was before the, the new phase of this war in Ukraine that has made things even more complicated. That's according to IMF data as of 2022, 59%. However, there are some well-known economists, including this, this economist, Stephen Jens, who worked at Morgan Stanley. He's a well-known currency analyst. He has calculated that if you look at the fluctuating exchange rates, actually the share of the US dollar in the foreign exchange reserves of central banks around the world is only 47% in declining. And he said that last year, and because of the war in Ukraine largely, there was a massive decline in the holdings of dollars. And we can see this in China, which really since 2013, the People's Bank of China has been has had a net decrease in treasury securities. Now, some people say, well, it's still buying some, but a net decrease, meaning that over time it's declining, even if sometimes it still buys some. So this is why I always say that de-dollarization is happening. Now, it's not immediate. And obviously, it's, these things are very complicated because if you just sell all of your treasuries immediately, it's going to cause a major economic crisis, probably internationally. I mean, China has trillions of dollars of US government debt. It can't just dump that overnight. I mean, if there's some kind of war, it could, and, but that would be part of this massive chaos. So China is trying to maintain macroeconomic stability and monetary stability. But we're seeing definitely gradual de-dollarization. And not just China, many countries are seeking alternatives. You mentioned even countries that have historically been US allies, like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE, because they now see after the US and the EU stole Russia's central bank reserves, they see if they do something that the West doesn't like, they could be next. Well, you um, have called the US financial system, quote, the biggest asset bubble in history. End quote. Now, a lot of people are all are looking at the U.S. markets. There is it going to crash? Is it not? And there are a lot of different opinions that it's not, or that it's going to eventually. A lot of people thought in H two this year that it was going to happen. We're here in H two. It hasn't happened yet. Um, what did you mean? And should we be concerned? Well, the the U.S. Federal Reserve, the central bank, has has pumped up the largest bubble of asset price inflation in history through, again, printing trillions of dollars. So after the 2008 financial crash, the response of the government was to bail out all of the big banks. I mean, that was they printed money, bailed out all of the banks. They did not imprison any corporate executives. Any like one. I can't remember who it was. And it, and it was like a minor executive and it was it had nothing to do with the actual fraud that they were carrying out and the toxic mortgages and the misleading practices. Right, yeah. And I mean so the point is that there were no repercussions and the banks really went back to carrying out some of the same, in some cases, criminal behavior or at least irresponsible behavior. By the way, this, this year, 2023, there have been three of the four largest bank collapses mm. in history were this year. Silicon Valley Bank, 
First Republic Bank, Signature Bank. So it's, it's a little different in that in this case, why these banks have collapsed. But the point is that the financial system is very unstable. So in response to the crash in 2008, the Federal Reserve implemented a policy known as quantitative easing, which is essentially money printing. Now, economists will say it's more complicated, but it's money printing. And it's the Federal Reserve, the central bank creates money and then uses that money to buy securities, largely U.S. treasuries, which is government debt, but also including bank securities, like for instance, loans, like toxic mortgage-backed securities. These, these toxic assets that no one else wanted to buy because they were all backed by bad loans, by mortgages that people couldn't pay. No one wanted to buy them, so the Federal Reserve printed money and bought them. And this inflated the value of the bank's balance sheet. It inflated the value of all of these assets and made rich people richer and richer and richer. And you can see this with the S&P 500, the value of stocks of the 500 biggest companies in the US. There's been a massive explosion in the value of these companies, at least on paper, the value. But in many cases, they're not producing much more. It's imaginary, fictitious capital. And you can see this, for instance, a classic example is Tesla. There was a there was a while there where Tesla, according to its market evaluation, the market capitalization, it was worth more on paper than all of the other major car manufacturers combined, which is absurd because Tesla produces something like you know maybe a hundred thousand cars per year, right? And then you look at all the other big car manufacturers, Toyota, etc. They produce millions of cars a year. All of them combined were worth less, according to this US stock market, than Tesla. I mean, there are so many examples of these companies that were just pumped up with all of this basically free money. And then what also happens, this is still happening, by the way, according to recent data, in 2022, US companies spent $1.22 trillion buying back their own stocks. What does that mean? It means that companies, in many cases, they took on debt because there were such low interest rates. They took on debt, they used that money to go to the stock market and to buy their own stocks, which pumped up the value of their stocks. And then they said, we're more valuable as a company. I mean, this is not, this is all pure speculation. This is casino behavior, right? This is not contributing to production. It's not providing goods and services to make people's lives better and more comfortable. It's pure speculation. And the Federal Reserve, which is printing money, to, to provide a recovery on paper, an economic recovery, but people's lives actually were not getting better. Instead, rich people were getting richer and they said, number go up, number go up, therefore the economy is better, therefore we're out of recession. And now what we see in the past year with the inflation crisis, which is largely due to COVID pandemic, supply chain disruptions and other and the war in Ukraine and all these issues, there was inflation. So the Federal Reserve, the central bank has been raising interest rates, which is popping the bubble slowly. And that's why three of four, four biggest banks in history have collapsed this year. So what we're seeing is a, a, a slow motion implosion of the US economy. Now, a lot, there are so many people basically now, everyone, all, all of the major economists and financial analysts in the US are, what they're really debating about is when is the recession going to hit? They're, not if, it's when. But the government right now has an has an eight has a deficit of eight percent of its GDP. It's massively spending basically in order to prevent a recession from happening because an election is coming up next year. So 
it's all a house of cards. For, for people who are confused by all the technicalities, the point is it's all a big financial house of cards. The US economy in this financial neoliberal era is not based on the kinds of forms of productive investment where we see in a country like China, which produces everything that everyone needs. The US economy is based on this big financial house of cards and the government's policy for over a decade now, you can go back to the 1980s, but especially since the 2008 crash, has been implementing policies that benefit the the zero, not even just the 1%, the 0.1%, making them richer, and then saying that the economy is great and doing well and growing because their wealth is growing. Okay, so real unemployment is something like 25% in the United States, which well, is called true unemployment. But unemployment is like 3%. Is, uh, so... The value of people's wages against the U.S. economic growth, however it's calculated, which is a mystery to me, um, for the last 20, 30, 40 years has been going down. Are people better off in America now than they were 40, 50 years ago? Well, this is a complicated question. I mean- I know. The, yeah, that's what I'm asking you. <laughs> technically, the unemployment figures are pretty low, which is why you often hear economists say the economy is doing so well mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. But- First of all, you have to understand with the U.S. unemployment figures, it doesn't include people who gave up looking yeah. for work. But even aside from that, I think a lot of unemployment figures are misleading because they don't they don't measure underemployment. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who are working really crappy jobs they don't want to be doing in the service sector, working at Starbucks or whatever. And a lot of people are doing very precarious work. They're riding they're driving Uber, Uber cars, taxis, and they're delivering food and these kinds of things. I mean, there are a lot of people who are skilled and don't have ways to use those skills because there's so there's so little kind of productive economic activity. It's you know it's largely in the service sector and financialized sector. And but also even looking at wages, I think if you look at wages, I mean, U.S. wages still are much higher than many other countries. Although what you've pointed out is that yes. Wages in the U.S. have been stagnant for workers really since the late 1970s, since the rise of this neoliberal financial era with outsourcing of good, high-quality jobs, especially these kinds of industrial jobs in manufacturing. And many of those companies went over overseas with the support of the U.S. government. And now they scapegoat countries like China, even though it wasn't China who decided to do that. It was the U.S. companies that decided to do that. Anyway, it's more of a scapegoating, you know. Um, Donald Trump says that China took the jobs, and, and meanwhile, he's completely just in bed with the same companies. They're the ones that took the jobs away from the people he claims to support. But this is always how this kind of scapegoating works. But the point is, to get back to your question, I, I think the better way to think about it, you know, people look at wages a lot, but what we should look at is is disposable income as a percentage of GDP. Because if you think about in the US, wages look very high compared to other countries, but that's because it's so expensive to live in the US. Health, health insurance is all privatized. There's no universal healthcare and it's extremely expensive. Thousands of dollars a month for insurance, often for a family. If you go to the hospital easily, you can have tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in hospital bills. So that alone, when you factor in the cost of, of healthcare in the US for, and you, you subtract that from wages, you lose a lot of disposable income. And by the way, Healthcare in the U.S. is almost 20% of GDP. So it's another reason why GDP figures in the U.S. are also kind of suspect because so much of that is com comes from just this overhead that it's not contributing to productive goods and services in the economy. So then you consider transportation 
is very expensive in the U.S. Because, you need a car. Yeah. Yeah. There's no public transportation. Uh, then you consider education mm -hmm. because increasingly the schools are being privatized and especially for higher education, oh you're talking gosh. hundreds, hundreds of, thousands of thousands of dollars. The most expensive education system in the world. So when you factor in all of those costs, when you actually look at disposable income in the US as a percentage of GDP, China is basically neck and neck at the same level mm. because when you factor in the cost of living and everything else, average Chinese workers actually have disposable income that is at a similar level mm. and China is still developing. So right. the reality is that, again, a lot of these economic figures, even when we talk about things like GDP and wages, they require a lot of context. When you look at the larger context, you can see that a lot of this in the U.S. is all, they just want to inflate the figures that, to make it look like they have such a big, great, strong economy. But it's actually when you look at the details and the quality of life, it's much weaker than people think. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I often see uh, there's a group on online, I think they're called Debt Strike, and they're talking about if student loans are turned on to full speed. And there's this off-ramp thing or on-ramp that Biden uh, initiated, so people don't actually have to pay their student loans until next year without any kind of effect on their credit and so forth. But a lot of these people, people associated with Debt Strike and other similar institutions think that you know, we've essentially not had to pay student loans, Americans, I think 45 million Americans for the last three years plus. If those get turned back on with people with the highest debt and credit cards and housing is more expensive than ever before, as far as I, I can understand with my non-economic background, will student loans cripple the U.S. economy, cripple consumption? Well, yeah, this is the irony, right? I mean, what's interesting is until recently, real estate prices were just, they continued to increase and increase and increase. But what we see now is a slight decline because the Federal Reserve, by raising interest rates in the past year to fight inflation, has actually been popping that bubble slowly that I talked about, of just pumping up the value of all these assets, making the rich richer. And in the case of student loans, what's interesting is you've seen a lot of economists say, the economy is doing so great, it's so healthy. Well, this is a factor that a lot of people haven't talked about. You have around $2 trillion of student debt in the US. And because for a few years, because of the pandemic measures, there was this temporary moratorium, people didn't have to pay their student debt. That means that they had a little bit of extra income, disposable income, and they can use it to spend on things like going to restaurants with their friends and buying food and whatever goods and services, right? So that actually provides more aggregate demand for the economy. So by now forcing people with this ridiculous student debt that shouldn't exist because education should be free, like in most countries, most industrialized countries, by forcing people to go back to paying this $2 trillion in debt, it's like you pointed out, it could definitely decrease aggregate demand in the economy overall demand, which could be another form of basically kind of austerity. It's like in, it has the impact of increasing taxes on the population, but then not using that money of the taxation to actually stimulate and benefit people. So at every single stage, once again, we see that these government policies are set up in a way where they benefit the rich. And this is why I think so many people, especially in the global South, are looking away from the US and they're looking at countries like China and saying, how can we learn from China's economic model that doesn't always put the, the burden for everything on working people? The United States has seen itself 
as the master of all of the Americas for decades. And as I think they call it their hemisphere. So increasingly, it looks like Latin America is looking to Asia to create more ties. You know about more about this than I. Can you elaborate a little bit about that paradigm, that shift? Yeah, I'm definitely Latin America is looking toward Asia and also Africa. I mentioned that right now, Brazil's president Lula has really emphasized the idea of South-South cooperation. Of course, the B in BRICS is Brazil. And Brazil is also the largest economy in Latin America. And Brazil has also been reinvigorating the process of regional integration through institutions like, for instance, the CELAC, which is the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, and also through a South American economic bloc. Uh, so what, what's happening is that Latin America understands that it's economically still very heavily reliant on the U.S., especially as an export market. The U.S. is still a huge economy, and a lot of these countries, they export agricultural products and textiles and raw materials to the U.S. So they're also trying to find ways to diversify their trade and trade among each other to help each other develop. And this leads to uh, also seeking assistance from China, right? So more and more countries in Latin America have been joining the Bell and Road Initiative and trying to build infrastructure to help facilitate this trade and economic development. So right now, about half of the countries in the region have joined Bell and Road. There's talks of Brazil joining. Now, Brazil already does have some, some infrastructure agreements, many infrastructure agreements with China. It's technically not a member of Bell and Road, but Basically, it's an honorary member, and it's probably going to very soon become an official member. So we see also many countries in Latin America are trading more with China now than they trade with the U.S., like Brazil. In fact, Brazil trades three times as much with China as it does with the U.S. And, and as an example of how important that relationship is, when Brazil's President Lula took a trip to China this, this year, he was in here in China for nearly five days, four and a half days, and he signed nearly 20 agreements. And when when Lula went to Washington, he didn't sign any agreements and he was in Washington for one day. So that symbolically, I think, for me, represents how important this relationship is. Now, in terms of U.S. policy, in response to the growing economic relations between Latin America and China, the U.S. has been invoking a colonial doctrine known as the Monroe Doctrine. This goes back 200 years, 1823, and James Monroe essentially declared that the that Latin America is part of the U.S. backyard, and this was in response to, it's complicated, but the point is that basically the U.S. was saying that we are going to protect Latin America from European colonialism. So the way that the U.S. portrayed it is in some ways anti-colonial, but it's actually colonial because what the U.S. was it's really saying, saying- These are our colony. This is our sphere of influence because, of course, this is the early 1800s. This is when you still have European colonialism and, for instance, European powers fighting over control of Africa and et cetera. So exactly, the U.S. said, Latin America is our sphere of influence, and, and the U.S. says we're against colonialism, and we don't want European colonialism in, in the Southern Hemisphere, but that's because they want their own colonial control over the region. And so in the past few years, we've seen a massive increase in the number of U.S. politicians who have invoked the Monroe Doctrine, a 200-year-old policy, in order to condemn China and Russia basically implying 
that, or not even implying, in some cases outright claiming that China is trying to colonize Latin America like European colonial powers like Spain and Portugal. By building bridges. So the U.S. is saying we are protecting Latin America from so-called Chinese colonialism or whatever. I mean, it is absolutely preposterous because, of course, everyone knows that it's the United States that has maintained neo-colonial policies over Latin America. The U.S. has invaded almost every single country in Latin America. The in some cases, multiple times. The U.S. has imposed sanctions on many Latin American nations. The U.S. has organized coups to overthrow elected governments in many countries in Latin America. Still today, the U.S. treats the region in a very arrogant, racist way. And I mean, I can name just very recent examples of U.S.-backed coups. So 2018, U.S.-backed coup attempt in Nicaragua. 2019, the U.S. coup attempt with Venezuela and Guaido, Juan Guaido and all this nonsense the U.S. did. 2019, another successful coup in Bolivia backed by the U.S. 2022, last year, a coup in Peru backed by the U.S. Or going back further, 2002, another U.S.-backed coup in Venezuela. A 2016 and 2018, U.S.-backed political coups in Brazil. Or 1973, the famous CIA-backed coup in Chile. Or 1954, the famous CIA-backed coup in Guatemala. Or the U.S.-backed coups that overthrew the 1964 coup in Brazil that installed a fascist military dictatorship in Argentina, in, in Paraguay. I mean, almost every single country. I'm not going to spend an hour talking about that stuff, but you get the idea. I mean, like, it, it's so preposterous for the U.S. to accuse these countries, especially China, which is, I mean, not it's doing the exact opposite of colonialism. It's, as you said, building bridges and roads and hospitals and helping these countries develop. Meanwhile, what what infrastructure did the British build in India? after nearly 200 years of colonialism. I mean, if you read the work of Indian scholars, they point out the only infrastructure that, that the U British Empire built in India was the bare basic infrastructure needed to export materials from India just to trains. Yeah. To it was ports. a few train tracks to ports and a few roads, and they, they just let the rest of the country just fall apart. They underdeveloped the country over time. And that's why Indians... In, when, in 1947, when the British finally left and ended their 200 years of colonial domination, Indians were poorer on average than they were 200 years before. I mean, that's incredible. Meanwhile, so that's underdevelopment, it's de-development. Meanwhile, the U.S. claims that China is supposedly a neo-colonial force in Latin America or in Africa or whatever. And meanwhile, China is actually building this infrastructure that these countries need to develop their economies. It's the exact opposite of colonialism. And that's why it's the peak of hypocrisy of the U.S. accusing China of colonialism in Latin America or the European powers, which colonized Africa, accusing China of colonialism in Africa. I mean, France committed genocide in numerous African nations, and they have the, the gall to accuse China of doing what they did. It is it is absolutely hypocritical. You've moved to Beijing, at least for now. And so you're a Beijinger, and you've been here more than a month now. Could you tell us a little bit about, as a human being, your impressions of the city? Incredible. I mean, the level of development is just remarkable. For instance, China's transportation grid is so much more advanced than the US. I mean, the trains, even the metro. I mean, I lived in New York for several years, and it's the only city in the U.S. that really has a functioning metro system. 
train, like an internal train system. There are smaller ones in other cities, but they're not very big. We had something small on in San Francisco, Muni, but it wasn't very, very limited. Yeah, very limited. And BART just goes through the city. It doesn't go around in the city. Yeah. yeah. And, and even in New York, it's a big system, but it's so old. It's decrepit. Mm. People are always complaining. It's, you know, it's dirty. And then here in China, it's so modern. It's so well, well kept. It's so clean. I mean, these are all things that I think every country should do, and especially rich countries in the West that have the resources, but they don't do it. They don't invest that that money in the infrastructure, in the development. So first of all, that's what's incredible. Second of all, people are so nice. So if you have like a friend in China who can help you with all of those things, and I had people who helped me to get everything set up on WeChat and Alipay, once you get everything set up, life is so easy. And you're like, man, Every country should adopt this kind of system. It's so easy to go buy food and to pay for stuff and to send money to people and to get a bike. Something that I really love, by the way. Yeah, I love The it. bikes because I, I don't have a car. I hate cars and I bike everywhere. And what's nice is I don't have to worry about where my bike is. Like usually in the past, I would always be like, okay, where did I leave my bike? I have it locked up there. I have to go. No, you just rent a bike. Take any bike. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there are so many things that I think are great that other countries should learn from. And that's why, by the way, there are so many people from around the world here in Beijing. Um, we are out of time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, ben Norton of Geopolitical Economy Report. That's how you can find uh, this program on YouTube. You can also find Ben Norton on Twitter. Are there any other places we can find you? Yeah, just everyone should go to my website, geopoliticaleconomy.com. And thanks for having me. It was it was a great discussion. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Oh, yeah.